Hey friends, this is kind of a trial show. Wanted to do something new, and if you may have noticed, this happened on a Saturday. Our normal show days are Mondays and Thursdays, so this is not replacing the normal shows where we interview guests from all sorts of different adventure sport disciplines. This show is a bonus episode, ASP Stories. And so we wanted to add it on top of the other shows as a trial to see if it's something that you think is worthwhile. So what this is, is me reading to you some things that I've written over the years. And I'm going to share with you a book that I was putting together many years ago when we first moved to the mountains of Colorado and when our children were young. I'm talking about my my college kids were in diapers at this time. But I wrote this book because I was so inspired by living in Colorado and how living at altitude was so different than living in other places. And I think that no matter where you live, there are unique things about where you are that are worth ferreting out, figuring out. Maybe you live near the coast, maybe you live in the mountains, maybe you live in the plains or the desert, uh, maybe just in some of the beautiful eastern forests. Regardless, every location is unique, and there is beauty in every location. But There aren't many people who live at altitude. In Colorado, you know, I would say maybe a tenth or less of the state live at at some level of altitude above the plains of the Front Range. But uh, that's probably a tenth. And then outside of Colorado, how many other states even have altitude? So people living at altitude is kind of a rare thing. And a lot of experiences came out of that that I shared in this book. The title of the book is... 8240, which was the elevation that we lived at the time. The subtitle for the book was One Family's Life Above the Clouds. And the reason that I titled it that is it was very frequent that in the mornings especially, there would be a cloud layer below us. And we're in the bright sunshine looking down into the soup, so to speak, that everyone else is living in. And the soup was fun too, don't get me wrong, I'm not I'm not trying to, to elevate us, ha ha above anybody else, but it was beautiful to look down on the clouds with the sun in your face and the cool air blowing. Just an amazing, amazing experience, and that was a frequent experience for the 20 years that we lived in the Front Range foothills of Colorado. So 8241, Family's Life Above the Clouds. Please let us know. We need to hear. Is this worth doing? Is this something you would like to hear more of? If so, then we'll keep rolling with it. If not, then why should we waste our time, right? But if you enjoy this new format, add it on, not replacing the interviews that we normally do. If you like this new format, the story hour format for Saturdays, then uh, please let us know. We do need to hear from you so that we find out whether or not you think that this is an effort worth the effort. Oh yeah, and What Follows has some cool acoustic guitar jamming in the background. That is my son, Luke, 13 years old, adding some ambiance to the reading. So thanks, Luke. And without further ado, I would like to introduce to you 8240, One Family's Life, Above the Clouds, Chapter 1. The Carrot Effect. Colorado. I was 10 years old when I first encountered it. Mountains that scrape the clouds, rivers that shake the ground trees like steeples thrust up into the deep, deep blue sky. This is not the milky blue sky of sky blue crayon fame. This is the blue of sapphires. This is the blue of unfathomable oceans. 
I stood at the bottom of this sea of sky and I filled my lungs with cool, thin air. Oh, the aroma, pine, granite, stream water. I was addicted. I was no stranger to nature. The natural world of rural Oklahoma was my tutor as I grew from a child to a man, but Colorado was different. It enchanted me. It called me both day and night. The day after I graduated from college, I piled my few worldly possessions into my old Bronco II. Single, broke, and jobless, I moved to Denver. A year or two in the city would be enough to find a wife, save some money, and move to the mountains. Or at least, that was the plan. Seven years later, found me blessed, indeed, with a wonderful wife, a beautiful newborn son, and my second career, but still in the big city. Those seven years were difficult on one accustomed to rural living. One evening in the early summer, my wife and I were sitting on the back porch of our rented house trying to eat dinner. Dogs were barking, and spouses were screaming at each other. Children were crying. Harley-Davidson's rattled our insides every few minutes. I started to take a bite of carrot when some particularly disturbing noise stopped me. You know, I could hit seven houses with this carrot without standing up, I announced. This is insane. Such was born the carrot effect. My wife, Anne, agreed. We determined not to spend another summer in the city. It was time. After interviewing too many realtors, we finally found a wonderful lady we could trust. I was headed to Chicago on a business trip, and houses were selling as quickly as they could hit the market. There was no time to lose. My wife and the realtor were to look at houses in the mountains west of Denver while I was in Chicago. Don't wait if you find the one we're looking for, I told Ann. You know what I want, and you know what you want. Let's not let this business trip cause us to miss an opportunity. Seven years in the city had not brought great prosperity. The odds of finding the perfect house in our price range were very slim. We had already toured several. Houses that were not even livable were selling for outrageous sums. It seemed that we were not the only ones trying to escape the carrot effect. I was completely serious about my wife choosing our home without me. I just didn't really believe it would happen. I'd been in Chicago for only a day when my cell phone rang. She had done it. She had signed the contract on her new home, paid the earnest money, and we were to close in three weeks. I was astounded. I quickly finished up the remaining business in Chicago, and I raced to catch an early flight to Denver. The following day, we buckled our son into his car seat and drove 50 minutes through the smog and gridlock down the interstate. We finally escaped the city by continuing up an extended, curvy two-lane road. This road followed a small stream that splashed down through a rugged canyon. Rock outcroppings stabbed the sky as would giant pieces of broken glass. Trees clung to the rocks like oversized lichens. This otherworldly terrain made us feel small and humble, vulnerable. It was exactly the sort of feeling that the harsh mountain environs had always inspired in me. I enjoy the mixture of peace and excitement, almost fear, certainly respect that the Rockies demand. After several miles, the canyon opened up into a wide, rolling valley. This landscape was more moderate. Large conifers replaced sharp boulders, Domes of stone mixed softly with a deep green of the forest. Mountain vistas played hide-and-seek with their eyes as our car maneuvered through the thick trees. The way became steeper, and soon we left the valley behind as the car climbed the broad shoulder of a mountain. 
Diving off this shoulder onto a side road, we eventually came to a steep, unpaved trail leading into the towering Ponderosa Pines. This was to become our new driveway. We were there. It was a very small, clean house on a tidy, mountainscaped acre of land. I climbed out of the car and I took one deep breath of that crisp, thin air. Ugh, I was addicted. I'm sold, I confidently told Anne. Sold and I've not even been in the house yet. We toured the home and visited with the current owners. They had simply outgrown the small house with two children and a third on the way. The house had under a thousand square feet of floor space. Surprisingly enough, it had three small bedrooms and two full baths. This was accomplished by combining the kitchen, living room, and dining room into one medium-sized great room. There was a wood stove in this multi-purpose space and a ceiling fan, heat in the winter, and something to stir the summer's warm stillness. The house also had central heat that ran on propane gas. The furnace was never really needed as the heat from the wood stove usually forced the occupants to throw open the doors and windows. It was a small house. We would have to put much of our furniture in storage. Still, it was enough, and it was at the limit of our price range. We would not find a larger house that we could afford. The current owners were very helpful. The husband was a medium-sized man with a mixed look in his eye. He was glad to move on to the next phase of his family's life, but it was evident that he loved this place that he had called home for several years. He and I walked the property boundaries together. There were hundreds of wild flowers scattered among pine needles, boulders, and trees. They represented every color of the rainbow. Here is the well, and over there the septic tank. An old pile of weathered boards lay where a smaller summer cabin had once stood. A rope hung from a large tree limb where his children often played. The oldest boy did not want to leave, but he'd be all right with it eventually. The wife confided in me that she never expected to convince her husband to sell the place. He had purchased the acre and the house as it was being framed. He had completed the building of the house himself. His grandparents had once owned much of the land in the area that had since been subdivided into a small mountain community. These were his roots. It would be difficult for him to leave these mountains. What's the elevation here? I asked the husband. Around 8,000 feet, I think. The USGS quadrangle map confirmed it. 8,240 feet above sea level. Our new life had begun. 8240, one family's life above the clouds. Chapter 2. Getting There The weeks that followed were full of tasks, too full. There was the well flow test to do. The water had to be tested by the health department. I insisted that we monitor the radon gas in the house. We had to complete our loan approval, close a transaction, empty and clean our rented house. Sheer excitement carried us through the chaotic schedule of these weeks. I looked forward to a summer in the cool air of 8240. I wanted to watch the aspen leaves change from lime green to brilliant gold. When would the first snowfall? September? Perhaps even the last week of August? My drive to work would be long. Downtown Denver was quite a distance. But I looked forward to driving that curvy road through the rocks and the trees. I looked forward to watching the rainstorms off in the distance from the canyon mouth. I dreamed of rainbows and fog and of deer bounding across the road ahead. This represented the fulfillment of a dream that I had entertained for many years. Oh, to be so blessed. The radon and the well water test snapped me back to reality. 
Nine picocuries of radon per liter of air. A bit of research revealed that that was more than twice the EPA recommended limits. One study showed radon to be the second leading cause of lung cancer in the U.S. Only tobacco could do greater harm. The realtor selling the house laughed. That's great, she said. Many houses up here have over 100 picocuries per liter. No worries. But I was worried. I was moving my family out of the big city smog so that we could enjoy clean air. I did not relish the thought of inhaling this invisible, odorless gas while we slept at night. It has to be fixed, I declared. The owner scoffed under their breath. That radon scam is just a way that bureaucrats created an industry for those who want to cheat innocent people out of their money. After all, people have lived up here for years without any problems. This seemed to be the popular sentiment among the residents of 8240. I was not convinced. Submembrane depressurization is the fix, I retorted. Radon gas is created as radium decays. Radon is a radioactive element with an atomic number of 86 and an atomic mass of 222, although there are 18 radioactive isotopes of this element. I don't really care how many neutrons radon's nucleus can manage to hold on to. One radioactive flavor is one too many for me. As a part of radium's radioactive decay, a small amount of energy is produced that shoots the radon particles into the air at high speeds. These airborne atoms are highly toxic, and when enough of them are inhaled, the eventualities can be somewhat less than desirable. The crushed minerals of the Rockies are quite high in radium, and as a result, the radon tends to accumulate in mountain homes. Radon is found throughout the United States, but in much higher concentrations in areas where the natural geology contains an abundance of heavy metals. Submembrane depressurization is a high-dollar term for a sheet of plastic and a fan. The plastic is stretched over the dirt in the crawl space and then glued to the house's foundation. The fan creates a vacuum under the plastic. The system provides a barrier for the radon, sucks the ground gases out from under the house, and then releases them into the outside air. It's touted to reduce the radon levels in most homes by 90%. It was clear that the owners were not interested in paying for this solution to a problem that they could not see, smell, taste, or touch. As the sellers stalled for more time, the water test results came back from the Boulder County Department of Health. They had been pleased with the well's flow test. The powerful pump could not drain the well fast enough to drop the water level in it. This 350-foot deep hole produced more water than we could ever need. Yet the health department made it clear that we actually had more tainted water than we would ever need. The test results counted high numbers of particularly nasty bacteria in the sample and then continued to assert that there were various other bacteria too numerous to count. In short, don't drink the water. We could not even get our loan approved unless the county would give the well a clean bill of health. All was not perfect in paradise. We talked to the local man who had done the flow test on the well. He told us that a UV filter was the answer. Many people simply shock the well and the house's plumbing with bleach. Then they take a new sample to, to the health department. If it passes, the mortgage companies are happy and paradise is back, at least until more groundwater contaminates the well. That could take months, days, or even just a few minutes. We desired a permanent solution. The UV filter promised great things. This two-stage filter first removes any particulates from the water and then blasts the water with intense ultraviolet radiation. The blast of UV would either kill or sterilize any microbes, rendering them harmless. We finally agreed with the sellers on a dual radiation plan. They would pay for the radiation that would kill the bacteria in the water, and we would pay to remove the radiation that could kill the humans in the house. Although neither radiation could be seen, smelled, tasted, or felt, the sellers did believe in the one that would get our loan approved. 
Contractors were scheduled for the installations. Paradise was restored, and we were to close on July 1st. The rest of the inspections went without a hitch. The loan was approved, and we began sharing the good news with our friends. I must say that our friends really proved their allegiance. On moving day, more than 10 people showed up to help us drag all of our worldly possessions, a few dozen miles northwest and up over 3,000 vertical feet. The amazing part of this is that although we told everyone we were to move, we had not asked a single person for their help. I toasted the crowd at lunch and sincerely thanked them. Few times in life had I felt so touched and blessed as on this moving day, Some may claim that it's a small thing to give up a day to lug a friend's boxes and furniture back and forth, but I disagree. We live in a very fast-paced world. Time has become our most precious asset. Had we thrown a big, extravagant party, a lot of these people would not have had time to attend. But we did not throw a party. These kind people were not even invited. They volunteered. Several exhausting hours later, our rent house had that lonely, empty echo. It was bare inside and swept free of all the evidence of the months that we had spent there. In this home, we had laughed and entertained guests. Here we had cried together with tears of joy upon realizing on Father's Day that we were with child. Anne had suffered through a very challenging pregnancy in this place. This was the home to which we returned from the hospital with our tiny newborn son. It was here that we had shared our happiness with many who came to celebrate this new life with us. But this home was not only a house. There was the enormous elm in the front yard that dwarfed the property and shaded us through the hot summer months. We had sat under this elm on July 4th while children set off illegal firecrackers in the street. Under the elm was the lawn that I had toiled over, fighting a desperate battle against dandelions. In the small garage, I had stripped a dresser of generations of paint, preparing it for our soon-to-arrive baby. Next to the garage was a tiny garden. This bare patch of earth had produced hundreds of tomatoes and even more turnips, as well as piles of lettuce and Swiss chard. Goodbye, tree. Goodbye, garage. Goodbye, garden. Goodbye, house. And then came that echo. Goodbye. The empty rooms reverberated. The empty house echo is the way that a home salutes us. Times had been good there. The house seemed to say thanks and good luck. It would stay behind under that big elm tree to serve others. But we moved on. It was time for a new season in our lives. After one last glance, we hurried away to the exciting new world of 8240. This episode of the Adventure Sports Podcast is brought to you by 180TAC.com. 180TAC manufactures premier backpacking and emergency products. Whether you need a backpacking stove for your week-long trek on the trail or an emergency stove for your bug-out bag, we have the tools you need. Visit www.180tack.com. Chapter 3. Latitude versus Altitude The years since we made the move have been filled with unique experiences, to say the least. Life at altitude may seem commonplace to Buddhist in Nepal or Tibet. There are some native tribes in the Andes of South America who have also lived for centuries at altitude. But the existence that may seem ordinary to a Buddhist monk, who was born nurtured and educated at 3,000 meters above sea level, is certainly full of surprises for those of us who learned of life at a lower altitude. Wherever there's a great mountain range, one is sure to find interesting people who have adapted their ways of life to survive the challenging climates that embody the spirit of these high places. 
But what about the outsiders? What about the lowlanders? These must learn the mountain crafts to last. Respect is quickly won by the mountains from anyone who ventures to dwell among them. The high places are both beautiful and dangerous. This environment can be fickle, changing abruptly from warm and inviting to cold and deadly. A stroll over a high, dry rock can change in a heartbeat to perilous scrambling over slick, wet, polished granite. Visibility often changes from literally scores of miles to mere feet in a matter of minutes as dense clouds race through the trees and over the ridges. The wind varies from screaming at over 100 miles per hour to whispering in an eerie hush that almost sucks the breath out of one's lungs. This silence can capture words, leaving sentences hanging. Words trail off into quieted, indistinguishable tones. This is a land of variety. This is a land that demands much of all living things. Yes, it's absolutely beautiful. It can be as comforting as a mother's warm embrace, but this world will turn on a person. It often attempts to drive living things away down to lower realms where the biosphere is more predictable and safe. We go to the mountains to find peace, freedom, privacy, happiness, and adventure. These things may or may not be found, but one thing is certain. No one lives for long at altitude without being changed. Some attempt to force this world into submission. They fail. Either learn the ways of the peaks and adapt, or run, and run many do. Every summer, dozens of families make the move into high places, and every spring, dozens of for sale signs sprout from the earth as predictably as the aspen buds sprout from the naked white trees. What is it about these mountains that draws people into them? What is it about these mountains that drives these same people away? What is it really like living at 8240? It has been said that some change in altitude is equivalent to another change in latitude, in other words, the world of the north is similar to the world of the heights. There are some similarities. Denver is well known as the Mile High City. At 5,280 feet, Denver is certainly one of the highest large cities. Denver is at about the same latitude as Washington, D.C. and Madrid, Spain. Denver is even a couple of degrees south of Rome. Still, the climate in Denver is much cooler and snowier than that of D.C. or Rome. This is due primarily to altitude. If Denver were at sea level, it would have to be located in Montana to have similar summer temperatures. We move from the Mile High City to the 60% higher world of 8240. For several years since our move, I've tried to predict the weather at 8240 based on the Denver forecasts. I found two things to be true. The temperatures at our house are usually about 15 degrees Fahrenheit cooler than Denver, and if Denver is predicted to get a foot of snow, we're in for more than double that amount. So where would that put our mountain home in terms of latitude at sea level? Well, at least in the summer months, that would land us in the middle of Canada. In the winter, the relationship between latitude and altitude do change somewhat. In the winter at high latitudes, the nights are quite long, and old soul peaks weakly over the horizon. At our latitude, the daylight hours certainly seem short, but we get several more hours of sunshine each day than our northern neighbors, and that at a more generous angle. This moderates the cold somewhat, but the altitude still diminishes the temperatures. Another way to describe the climate at 8240 is via the seasons. Forget the calendar. The first day of spring comes and goes at 8240 in the midst of the snowiest month of the year. The snow that accumulates through the long winter does not melt off until May. Except for crocuses, the wildflowers don't flourish until the middle of June. By these measures, spring comes to 8240 in late May. If spring drags its feet up the slopes, the onslaught of winter seems to come crashing down from the higher peaks with an early gusto. 
Snow can come in August. It almost always shows up in September. By the end of October, 8240 reliably provides snow that may not melt completely until spring. This harsh, elongated winter season seems to be the primary cause of the spring exodus, but it's hardly the only defining quality of the climate at 8240. Bringing any lowlander to these heights and other characteristic of life at altitude is apparent with their first stroll across the property. The thin air leaves the unaccustomed lungs gasping for a grip. Doctors tell us that the first day or so is the worst. The body acclimates to the thin air by producing more hemoglobin. This additional hemoglobin balances the lack of atmospheric pressure by carrying more oxygen from the lungs to the cells of the body. Adjustment continues for several more days, and one may not be completely at ease for over a month. Altitude sickness does attack some at this elevation. Having made a hobby out of mountain climbing, I'm all too familiar with the early stages of this attack from the thin air. It usually shows up as a headache, a pain behind the eyes. Soon one begins to lose a little equilibrium. A misplaced foot here or an off-balance stumble there is a sure sign of the next symptom, nausea. The word reminds us of one who wants to stop the sea. Stop the rolling waves. Oh, please, stop this ground from rocking. Following the cursing of the sea comes the heaving of the sailor. This is the limit. It's time to get thee to lower ground, to thicker air. The foolhardy who do not heed this warning may find themselves with edema in the lungs or even the brain. Next comes a coma, and then the great beyond. Luckily, few ever get much beyond the upset stomach at 8240. Some experience no symptoms at all. All of this may make living at this altitude seem unattractive. Don't be deceived. Life at altitude is a lifestyle, not only a location, but what a lifestyle. Consider living in a house that will never have an air conditioner and using winter blankets all summer long. Imagine the pleasure of letting the sun saturate your skin on an average July morning and not breaking into a sweat. Feel the crisp, icy air that crystallizes the inside of your nose on a February afternoon. It's invigorating. Snow often comes in winter and it shrouds the destruction of humans. All the scars that machines and tires and feet have cut into the earth are erased by the snow. The negligence of our species toward the earth is hidden for a season. All is forgiven under a cover of fluffy white whisperings. The snow comes lightly. The snow comes silently. It balances in clumps on deep green pine needles. The world is transformed. It smells different. It looks perfectly clean. On a sunny morning, a gentle breeze on a tree will create hundreds of tiny sparkling avalanches. Each minuscule snow crystal acts like a prism refracting the sun's golden rays into dozens of microscopic rainbows. The combined effect is a symphony for the eyes. I've seen such beauty, and I have had to close my eyes. It's too rich to take in all at once. I take a small bite of patterns and color and then close my eyes to savor its uniqueness and flavor. Then I open my eyes to capture another sample of the visual feast.
And that concludes the readings for this episode of ASP Stories. It was 8240, One Family's Life Above the Clouds. We will have another segment for you next Saturday, so make sure to download that one and tell your friends about it. We have several different goals for these readings. You know, it's a different format, different subject matter than our standard podcast. We're hopeful that each of you enjoy it as a change of pace, but we're also hopeful that this will broaden the audience, bring in some new listeners who might find the uh, the book reading kind of fun, and then start listening into the podcast where we do interview amazing guests about their adventure sports. You know, the goal here is to encourage people to get out there and have some fun. And the reason for that fun, of course, is for health, for richer lives, for great life experiences, for building community, all those sorts of things that we talk about so much on the Adventure Sports Podcast. So if you are new to the show, welcome. Please tune in to Monday and Thursday's shows where you hear from these guests. And on Saturdays, we'll have readings like this. If you like the format, if this is a success, then we have other plans for the Saturday ASP stories. Many of our guests have written books of their own about their adventures, and it might be fun to have some of them come on and read uh, segments out of their writings. Thanks so much for listening today, and happy Saturday. Take care, and until our next show on Monday, make sure you do get out there. Have some fun. Thanks for listening to the Adventure Sports Podcast and this bonus episode of 8240, One Family's Life Above the Clouds. We hope you guys enjoyed it and come back for another chapter. Please be sure to leave us a comment on our website at adventuresportspodcast.com or on Facebook at facebook.com slash adventuresportspodcast. Don't forget, you can also help to keep this show going by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash adventuresportspodcast. A lot of work goes into this show. We can certainly use your help to keep the great interviews coming. Until the next time, get out and have some fun.